Welcome to the Pensions Podcast from Stevenson Harwood's Pensions Team. You can subscribe and listen again on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. We will be issuing monthly podcasts as an alternative way of getting the information from our pension snapshot. I'm Graham Wrightson, partner in the pensions team, and I have with me Naeem Noor, a senior associate in the pensions team. Today we're going to talk about some of the key pensions law developments up until the end of March 2018. So Naeem, what has the pensions regulator recently been up to? Well Graham, on the 27th of March, the pensions regulator, who will refer to as TPR in this podcast, published for consultation a code of practice number 15. The code that spans some 85 pages relates to the authorisation and supervision of master trusts and sets out TPR's expectations of the operators of such master trusts. Broadly speaking, a master trust is an occupational pension scheme which provides money purchase benefits and is used by two or more unconnected employers and is not a relevant public service pension scheme. From the 1st of October 2018, Master Trusts will have to apply to TPR for authorisation. To be authorised, a Master Trust must satisfy TPR that it meets and continues to meet the authorisation criteria introduced in the Pension Schemes Act 2017. So, scheme trustees, funders and strategists involved in the scheme need to be fit and proper persons. TPR expects that, before applying for authorisation, those running master trusts will carry out due diligence to determine whether the fit and proper criteria is met and identify any action needed. The scheme will also need to be financially sustainable. TPR expects the master trust to demonstrate that it has enough financial support to ensure it can set up and operate on a day-to-day basis and cover the costs subsequent to a triggering event without increasing the cost to members. A key part of this is having a business plan in place which sets out the expected activities and growth of the Master Trust and how it will be funded. The third point to note is that each scheme funder will also need to be a body corporate or partnership and broadly only carry out activities directly relating to Master Trusts. TPR will look for clear evidence in relation to the scheme funder's business activities that it can do this. Next, The Code states that the Master Trust must have sufficient IT systems and processes in place to run efficiently and have robust processes to effectively govern the scheme and comply with all the relevant requirements. TPR will need to be satisfied about the standards, functionality and maintenance of the IT systems used in scheme administration and governance, the processes and controls that are used in scheme administration, the governance arrangements and processes used to ensure sufficient oversight of the Master Trust's activities. Finally, the scheme will need a continuity strategy, that is, a high-level plan setting out how the members' benefits will be protected following a triggering event. For example, the issue of warning or determination notices by the TPR, the insolvency of a scheme funder or notification by TPR that a Master Trust is not authorised. A continuity strategy must consider two possible outcomes from a triggering event, whether to wind up and transfer out or to resolve the triggering event. The consultation on the cord runs until the 8th of May. TPR has said it will publish guidance to accompany the cord in due course. The significance of the cord to the authorisation regime makes it a must-read for all operators and managers of master trusts. So, Graham, that's the latest from the pensions regulator. Is there anything to report from the pensions ombudsman? Thanks, Naeem. While there's been yet another recovery of overpayments case, these still seem to be coming through thick and fast. 
So Mr Y was a member of the Armed Forces Pension Scheme, which is administered by Veterans UK. Equinity was contracted to provide payroll services in respect of AFPS benefits. Mr Y was made redundant on 5th of June 1983 and began to receive his AFPS pension on 6th of June 1983. The pension was initially reduced to provide Mr Y with a resettlement lump sum but was reinstated at its full amount when Mr Y reached age 55 on the 5th of June 2005. In June 2015, Equinity realised that, between 5th of June 2005 and 20 May 2015, Mr Y received a net pension overpayment of some £21,000. Equinity therefore contacted Mr Y to request recovery of the overpayment. Mr Y objected to the request and made a complaint through the AFPS Internal Dispute Resolution Procedure. However, Mr Y's complaint was not upheld and so he referred it to the Ombudsman. He argued that he had made financial commitments based on the higher pension and that repayment would have a detrimental effect on his life. In particular, Mr Y claimed he'd made a number of purchases he wouldn't otherwise have made had it not been for the overpayment, such as an 18-foot Seahawk boat and a Land Rover Freelander. In line with the decision in Weber, the Ombudsman held that the cut-off date for limitation purposes was 23 December 2016, when the Ombudsman received Veteran UK's formal response to Mr Y's complaint. As such, Veterans UK was only able to recover overpayments dating back six years from that date. Overpayments made in the period from June 2005 to December 2010 were statute barred. The Ombudsman noted that there might have been further defences available to Mr Y in respect of the remainder of the overpayment. In particular, Mr Y might have had a defence if he could show that, because of the overpayment, he had changed his position such that it would be unjust to require him to repay the overpayment. However, the Ombudsman considered that Mr Y's additional expenditure would have happened in any event and didn't occur due to the overpayment. As such, it was not inequitable to require Mr Y to repay the overpayment. The Ombudsman also directed that a £500 compensation payment offered by Veterans UK to Mr Y should be offset against the remainder of the overpayment and that Veterans UK and or Equinity should liaise directly with Mr Y to agree a reasonable period for the recovery of the overpayment. So that's Mr Y. The government's also been busy in relation to looking at protections which might be applied in relation to defined benefit pension schemes. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that, Naeem? Sure. The Department for Work and Pensions issued its white paper protecting defined benefit pension schemes following on from its green paper of February 2017. The focus of the paper is on measures that the government intends to implement to strengthen TPR and protect defined benefit members' benefits as opposed to measures to assist scheme sponsors or trustees. DWP forewarns that it will take a number of years to implement the various proposals made in the white paper, with primary legislation unlikely to be tabled until the 2019-20 parliamentary session at the earliest. Prior to that, we can expect a number of consultations from DWP and TPR. Certain key measures include some clarifications to and strengthening of the scheme funding regime. This includes a new DB funding code with clearer funding standards and more teeth insofar as trustees and scheme sponsors will be legally obliged to comply with all or at least some of the new code with fines and sanctions for non-compliance. In addition, the government proposes to make it a mandatory requirement for schemes to have a chair of trustees who must provide a statement that needs to be submitted with each full scheme valuation. The content of that statement will be set out in the new code. The white paper then sets out an intention to give TPR enhanced powers to, among other things, guard against those who put DB schemes at risk. These enhancements include 
new fines and criminal sanctions with scope for TPR to impose penalties for conduct arising on or after the date of the White Paper, a potential update of the current notifiable events regime, a potential update to the pension regulator's clearance guidance, enhancements to TPR's information gathering powers, including the ability to compel individuals, including professional advisers, to attend interviews, and new fines for a failure to comply with TPR's requests for information a requirement for companies to make a statement of intent before certain relevant business transactions, the content of which would require consultation with the scheme's trustees. And consolidation has also come into the spotlight. The white paper also blows wind into the sales of creating a new DB consolidator vehicle to enable DB schemes to be brought into a larger body, as opposed to being brought out, bought out rather, through an insurance vehicle. In addition to key commercial driver for this initiative, namely enabling the sponsor to pass on its DB scheme liabilities to the consolidator vehicle without necessarily having to pay a premium at buyout level, the DWP seems to be hoping that consolidators will bring the benefits and efficiencies of shared functions and enhanced governance. Watch this space for further detail in the form of a consultation later this year. While a number of measures set out in the Green Paper are being taken forward, Some material suggestions have been set aside. The items dropped for now at least include a mandatory clearance regime for certain types of transactions, a shortening of the period to submit triennial valuations, an RPI-CPI override and changes to the employer debt regime. Well, that's it for this podcast edition. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about any of the items we've discussed today, or if you have any questions, then please feel free to contact either Naeem, me, or your usual contact in the Stevenson Harwood Pensions team. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud, or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 